What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Oh, hey, before we start the show, I got to tell you about the Allegedly podcast with my lawyers, Bo Bowen and Ryan Schmidt. They got pop culture, they got legal news, they got behind-the-scenes antics, and a whole lot of laughs. One of the best podcasts I've ever heard. Allegedly with Bo and Ryan at thebowenlawgroup.com. Link in the description and everywhere you get your podcasts, of course. And now let the cartoons begin. The Bob Seska Show. Bob Seska. Not great, Bob. The Bob Seska Show. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, May 17, 2023, and this is the Bob Seska Interview on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Bob. Hello, Bob. Hi, day 847 of the Biden-Harris administration, 538 days until the 24th presidential election. You can find me on Instagram, the Bob Seska, Twitter, Bob Seska underscore go, spoutable Bob Seska, and our Patreon page is bobseskashow.com. So we're talking about guns on today's show. My guest is Ryan Bussey, a former gun industry executive and current author and gun control activist. His book, Gunfight, is available wherever you get your books. Link in the description for that. While I have great contempt for the gun industry, I so admire what Ryan has done by divorcing himself from all that and speaking out in support of rational, reasonable, responsible gun ownership, speaking out against the pro-gun extremism that's risen up in the past 20 years. So today we're going to dig into the gun culture, what can be done to roll back the proliferation of firearms in America, and a whole lot more. Meantime, think about supporting this fully independent podcast by subscribing to our Patreon page at bobseskashow.com. Okay, here comes me and Ryan Bussey. More fun, more music, the Bob Seska Show. Hey, congratulations, you made it to L.A. safely. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say congratulations, I made it to L.A., but I did make it safely, yes. I, had, <laughs> I, deserve, I deserve congratulations for that. I noticed on Twitter that the flight you were on, or at least the uh, airplane you were on, was held together with duct tape. Is that true? <clears throat> That's correct, and I'm a big fan of duct tape, and um, <clears throat> I generally think it's sort of like a hammer. If at first you don't succeed, get a bigger one. Um, if you can't, if you can't fix it with duct tape, you just need some more duct tape. Yeah, I'm glad the airlines have incorporated that. It makes you feel safe. Yeah, I mean, I'm, what what made me feel particularly good is I'm pretty sure the mechanic that applied that duct tape was probably working at a rate of you know 110 bucks an hour, um, <laughs> and so that is some expensive damn duct tape right there. <laughs> right on. Yes, it instills you with confidence, doesn't it? FAA approved. <laughs> 
let's just uh, let's jump right in, Ryan. Um, let's talk about why you ended up working for the gun industry and what prompted you to escape from all of that. Well, I'll get I'll, I'll jump to the last part real quick first mm. to kind of set it up. But but I think that in a lot of ways, um, the industry parted ways with me, not vice versa. But yeah. I grew up on a ranch, um, rural Western Kansas ranch, and many of the best days of my life were spent with guns. And I think it's important for your listeners and for readers of my book to understand the first part of my book hits this. There's a lot of people in this country who have, by all accounts, by my estimation, um, sort of a healthy cultural attachment to guns. And I was one of those kids growing up. Mm -hmm. I worked really hard on a ranch, even at a young age, and didn't have a lot of time for fun. And when we did, oftentimes it involved guns. And that was responsibly hunting or shooting with my dad or my grandfather or my brother. And so over time, um, guns really came to represent something, you know, kind of our culture, something we like to do, yeah. fun times, things of those sorts. And then after I graduated from college, I thought better about being an attorney, um, something my wife says that I miss my calling at. She does not mean that in a complimentary <laughs> fashion. Um, but I, I ended up getting into the gun business at a young age for a small fledgling company, and we built it into a very large and influential company. In a lot of ways, mm -hmm. I kind of felt like a kid that was playing baseball. I made the major leagues, right? Like I get to do something in and around the stuff that I love. Yeah. Um, and then it got more complicated from there. Yeah, yeah. And that was, uh, what are we talking about? The 90s, late 80s, 90s? Yeah, I entered the... I entered the industry in uh, the firearms industry in 1995, yeah. and um, I spent 25 years as a sales executive, a leading sales executive in the industry. Wow. Um, I left in 2020, um, and so I kind of saw, I lived through the rise of what has become modern gun culture, the way that the NRA, at the height of its power, really, you know, I think it was the most effective and most powerful lobbying organization perhaps that the country has ever seen. And I, and I think we're living with the ramifications of that. And so over the course of that span of time, you witnessed the expansion of the pro-gun movement into a more radical posture. And that yeah. has, and that was a kind of a, I guess for you, uh, a sort of a boiling of the frog situation where it's starting to happen. Maybe you don't realize it right away, but suddenly you look around yourself and you go, oh my God, where the, where'd all this extremism come in? Yeah, and it mirrors <clears throat> it. It very much mirrors our national politics. Yeah. When I got into the industry, just like our politics were 25, 30 years ago, they were imperfect, but they weren't this right. Yeah. Um, and and there were I was raised. Everybody I was raised with took hunter safety classes. We um, uh, anybody who was around us made sure that we were responsible with guns. They were not our identity. You didn't wear them. You didn't wear outlines of guns on your hat or put bumper stickers on your truck or certainly not open carry in towns to scare kids and damn sure didn't participate in insurrections carrying AR-15 flags, right? Yeah. And so um, the first part of my career, in a lot of ways, the industry was still infused with that kind of voluntary, responsible prohibition. For instance, the industry itself until the mid 2000s would not allow tactical gear of any sort to be displayed in its own trade shows. There was hunting stuff. There was target stuff. There was self-defense stuff. There was no tactical stuff. And yeah. that wasn't a yeah. law. The industry decided not to do that. Why did it decide not to do that? One of the major reasons was is just responsible people knew that proliferating that kind of stuff and the marketing that would that it would lead to could lead to very, very bad things in our society. And you know what? They were right. 
it has. What's the deal with all of the tactical gear? As one of the things I'm trying to wrap my head around, um, is it some sort of role-playing thing, or is there legitimately a sense among uh, modern gun enthusiasts that they will eventually need all of this additional gear, maybe to defend themselves in some sort of government invasion or government overreach? What is it with that? I mean, I see it even like Amazon selling tactical gear. I'm trying to grasp um, what that is. Wrapped up in your question, there's a lot in it. And in a lot of ways, that sort of tells the story of of why we're here. First off, Mm. tactical means, and this is why it was not allowed in the trade shows, right? You had to, tactical was in a trade show, but it was in a cordoned off, curtained off place. You had to be a a credentialed law enforcement or military officer to even get in there, right? Now, now, literally, dude, you can buy tactical underwear. That I don't quite know what to say about that, but there is tactical wow. underwear. There are tactical socks. What does that even do? What does the tactical underwear do? What's the point of that? Well, again, um, I, okay, that's a bad joke. I'm not. I'm gonna. I'm okay. Gonna okay. All right. So uh, there's not really tactical underwear. Okay. You, you, you got <laughs> okay. me, Ryan. All right. I'm a sucker. But tactical means planned offensive operation. Uh-huh. Okay. It's not tactical is not defensive. Tactical is planned and offensive. And so if you think about the proliferation of tactical gear in an industry where that where it once was not allowed, essentially we are telling a group of people and we are marketing and we are trying to develop customers as a country, the industry is, to be prepared for offensive planned armed operations, right down to your socks and your underwear and your pants and your hats and your gloves and your vest and your helmets and your goggles and on and on and on. And and now many, if not most, of the firearms that are sold in the United States, totally different than 15 years ago, um, are tactical in nature. Even the handguns are tactical. They, be, they are becoming much higher capacity very fast, a much higher, back in, you know, 15 years ago, about one, one and a half percent of the guns sold in the United States were like tactical. So like an AR-15 or like a high capacity handgun. Now it's in the range. It's somewhere in the range above 50 percent, maybe higher than that, maybe 60 or 70. Mm. And so we are putting somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 million air quotes here, tactical guns into the market. We are marketing those very aggressively. There are now between um, 200 and 500 tactical gear companies where there once were none um, very recently. So think of it this way. We're putting a few million, a few tens of millions of hammers into society. And I think when you do that, somebody's going to find a freaking nail. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, what's the intention from a manufacturer point of view when it comes to developing these tactical firearms? Is the idea, let's create something sexy that will attract new buyers, or is there some sort of practical intention behind creating yeah, things like the AR-15 and so on? It's a weird kind of almost storm that feeds upon itself. Mm-hmm. First off, to need tactical gear, you have to start to believe that you're going to need to engage in some planned military operation, some offensive operation. So yeah. it's no yeah. it's no accident that the NRA has really led the industry by its nose in creating a fearful, I mean, why are we fearful, fearful of immigrants? Well, let's see, more guns would solve that. Yeah. Okay, we're fearful of each other. Oh, we're fearful of Black Lives Matter protests. Oh, we're fearful of Antifa. We're fe- like, fear, 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 right? Eventually you think, oh, I gotta be that couple in St. Louis. I gotta get, I gotta stand out, look like an idiot on my front yard with a AR-15 and a wife that's holding a pistol in a weird way. Um, yeah. and, and, and so, it. and then the more people that buy guns, 
and don't really know how to use them. Now, if you're walking down the street and you see that couple in St. Louis and they're out there waving their guns around at you, what's the likely you ha, you then have a higher likelihood of yourself going home and saying, geez, honey, I better get a gun. Those people down the street are crazy. You see, it starts to feed on itself. Um, yeah. Then then you have the Second Amendment um, changes in the way the Second Amendment is being interpreted and pushed by people. It used to be a, I have a right to self-defense. Now it is a, I must buy a gun to be ready to shoot um, tyrannical governments and fellow citizens. I must be ready for the civil war. Not I have the right, but I must do it. It's my patriotic duty. Big shift. It's a big shift. There was a time, obviously the assault weapons ban of 1994 is a great example of this. There was a time when you could create reasonable exceptions to the second amendment what's happened since then? Why has the Second Amendment become this thing that can't be touched whatsoever and it's driven so far afield in terms of where yeah, it actually it's, started? It, it is definitely far afield. And it's, you know, and part of the, one of the major through lines of my book is that everything that's happened in the gun industry it, as far as radicalization is really a predictor, a seeding ground for what has happened in our politics. And mm -hmm. so if you think, if you think of, you could, you could ask me almost exactly the same question about the GOP slash Republicanism, right? You could say, well, there, are there any Republicans left that are in it just for these good old traditional main street kind of reasons? And, and you would say, well, yes, they are, but they're pretty damn drowned out now, right? I mean, yeah. they don't really have a voice. Same exact thing on the second amendment. Are there lots of people, I think, that revere it and respect it for defensible, constitutional, patri truly patriotic reasons. Yes, but they're not the ones with the mic. Um, they have to figure out a way to take the mic back. I mean, I count I count myself as one of those. I'm a gun owner. I hunt and shoot with my kids, and they they shoot in like you know trap competitions, skeet competitions, things like that. Um, I believe in self defense. Do I believe that it's dangerous? both for the Second Amendment and for our country to have these jack wagons marching around streets, scaring people with AR-15s going into the Michigan Capitol, putting them on flags on January. Yes, I believe all that. So um, there, there are many of us out there, but we have to figure out a way to take the mic back in the same way that if we're going to survive as a country, somebody's got somebody's to pull the GOP out of the ashes, man. Yeah, I would say so. And that brings me to uh, that relationship between the Republican Party, the gun lobby and gun manufacturers. We're looking at polls. For example, the latest Fox News poll showed a 61 percent support for an assault weapons ban. Uh, other regulations show 80 percent support in that range. Seems like the true constituency of the Republican Party is the gun industry. Does that make sense? Yes, it's the it's the radicalized base, both in and and again, the gun industry was and is a predictor for what is going on in politics. And this is the you hit on the absolute perfect illustration of that. Yeah. As I've mentioned uh, many times, and you're right, just take take the universal background checks thing, which does pull in the mid to high 80s, and man, nothing. Nothing polls in the mid 80s. As I've said before, ice cream does not poll in the mid 80s. Um, yeah. And yet, and yet it does not pass. Why does it not pass? Um, why can it not get a vote? I mean, it was not even, we had moderate uh, legislative success last year with a Senate bill where 65 senators voted yes, meaning meaning 15 Republicans voted yes on something, but they purposely excluded this. Why is that? I think it's because guns the issue of guns, the way that guns are symbolic of a of a totalitarian, anti-democratic, um, 
we own the libs, kind of a middle finger to the libs, is really totemic to the Republican Party. And if you think about it, the best analogy I have is this. There's a beam in the Republican House, and everybody looks at it, and 85% of the people say, man, that's got a lot of asbestos in it. It's flaking <laughs> off. It's going to give everybody cancer. And everybody in the 85 85% of the people say, yeah, cancer's bad, asbestos, we should get rid of it. Um, we got to do something about this. Then the Republicans go off and they have a meeting and they come back and they say, yeah, about that asbestos and that beam. Um, <laughs> if we pull the beam out, our whole house crumbles. And so tell you what, we're just going to kind of live with the asbestos for a while. You, we're not pulling the beam out. Yeah. Um, that, I think, is the way to think about the way the gun issue really is the totemic central issue for the Republican Party. So it's really the culture war, in a sense, has transformed the view of firearms, even among a firearm enthusiasts, from being one thing, which is maybe in many cases a means to an end. You use this tool that you buy at Cabela's or whatever, and you use that to go hunting with your children. But now it seems as though what leads the debate around firearms, at least coming from a Republican perspective, is the notion of owning the libs, as you said, yeah. where the idea is, well, we love this thing and we want to protect this thing because it pisses those guys off. So it's not about the Second Amendment. It's not about any sort of reverence toward that. It's not about the firearms themselves. It's just about that culture war aspect, the butting of heads, the divisive nature of our politics now. And that's what's driving it, right? Absolutely. And and, and put yourself in the shoes of some angry dudes who want to own the libs. Yeah. Is it even possible to consider anything that would be better at pissing off your enemies than taking a loaded AR-15 and just shoving it in their face? Like I can't, they're not even a MAGA hat, not even a middle finger. Yeah. Um, nothing would convey the sort of, the sort of, everything is conveyed. Every political message you need to convey from the right is it happens right there. Yeah. It raises a an interesting thought. And I, I look back to the weeks and months following the uh, mass shooting in Las Vegas at that outdoor concert. And that was a, a mass shooting that was engaged using, uh, a, I think, a AR-15 style rifles with bump stocks. And That's that correct. kind of that prompted Donald Trump, literally the only good thing, as far as I'm concerned, that he did in his four years was that led Donald Trump to ban bump stocks. And that was kind of a giant step forward, weirdly enough, in the gun control debate, although it was met with almost total silence from the gun lobby and the usual suspects. It was a weird thing. Maybe it was a Nixon to China kind of situation. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Now, now um, there are 17 attorneys general suing it and the gun industry is uh, joining that effort. And the NRA has reversed course and the bump stock ban is going to be reversed because they kind of caught their wind. I think you're right. Everybody at the time said, dude, this looks pretty bad. Let's agree with banning these bump stocks. But now it's settled down and it's going to be reversed. How do you justify bump stocks? As I can't wrap my head around, Ryan, is this is something that described by one of the manufacturers of bump stocks. This is a thing that transforms a semi-automatic weapon to something that literally sprays bullets like a fire hose. Uh, how do you justify you that? Just, I mean, what is that? What do you use that for other than mowing down human beings? I don't understand. So the way you justify that is remember earlier in our conversation, we talked about the shift in the way the Second Amendment is being interpreted and mm -hmm. used. Mm -hmm. If you believe the Second Amendment is for the sort of stuff that 
most everybody believed, I think still does, but everybody in the gun industry believed, you know, self-defense, responsible use, balanced with the safety of society, all those sorts of things up until about the late 2000s, somewhere in the middle of Obama's campaign. If you believe that, there is no justification. If, on the other hand, you believe you must own firearms to take down the evil, tyrannical government and be ready to kill um, your fellow citizens in a civil war, then you believe in the quote unquote shall not be infringed part of the second amendment. And these, there are a growing number of very loud people who literally believe your right to own a gun shall not be infringed. No buts, no anything. Does that mean bump stocks? Sure. Hmm. Um, F-15 fighter jets? Why not? M1 Abrams tanks? You bet. Thermonuclear warheads? Absolutely. And I'm I'm not making this up. Wow. And so and so bump stocks are like a minor, you know, afterthought to these people. They of course they want to believe they should own them. How do pro-gun activists rationalize the obvious militia intent of the Second Amendment? I mean, that's how the language starts. How do how do you figure out a way around that? <laughs> I don't. Well, I have a hard time finding to, that that route. If I'm putting my head my myself into the shoes of a pro gun activist, that first phrase <laughs> that sets up the entire amendment, uh, a well regulated militia, etc. Uh, I have a hard time figuring out how they uh, sidestep all of that. Well, they don't really, but what they do is make up new meanings or supposed meanings, or they uh, gloss over a few words. But essentially, if if you force me to be in their shoes or their tactical combat boots here for a minute, yeah. um, what what they would say is a well-regulated well militia. Regulated means they should have lots of guns. That's what regulation means, like you should give them lots of guns. And the, and the second part of that militia is, well, there wasn't really militias back then in 1791. What there was was lots of people everywhere. So all the militia is is lots of people ready to go to war. So you need all these people out there ready to go to war at a moment's notice. And yeah. I'm yeah. telling you, that's right there is about the extent of the thought. So the gun lobby has become a, a gigantic marketing weapon for the gun industry. I mean, what's the relationship both financially and strategically, Ryan, between uh, gun manufacturers and the lobbyists? Uh, I know. Well, that, it's been yeah. misreported. And um, for a long time, you know, I would hear news stories where um, things would be said like, well, the NRA is just an arm of the gun lobby or, 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 or just an arm of the gun manufacturers. And I worked at a gun manufacturer. I'd be like, no, 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 no. You got it wrong. What's going on. And I still think, so I think in the seed of your question, in my opinion, you might have it a little off. You're, you're aiming at it, right. But you're off just a little. Here's how mm -hmm. the ultimate goal for all of this is political power and money. And the NRA and, and these other groups are excellent at dreaming up ways to, to, further the culture war or start the culture war and um, increase their power and money. That's basically what they do. Now, it just so happens that the same things that do that, the use of fear, conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. hatred, racism, those same things, all the things that Donald Trump used, um, those are exactly the same things that sell guns. Um, if you think about prior to Barack Obama leading in the polls in 2007, the United States had never purchased more than about six and a half or seven million new guns in a single year ever in the history of the country. By the time Barack Obama left office, we were purchasing almost 17 million. And in the in the worst, craziest, most angst-filled year any of us can remember, 2020, you know, I don't even have to go through all of the crap we were dealing with. Um, we purchased almost 23 million guns. Yeah. So um, four times 
almost four times as many as before Barack Obama led in the polls. And if you overlay that with the increase in political radicalization and hatred and fear and conspiracy theory, the, the graphs match up perfectly. So the relationship is the power and money, the surge for power and money is dragging the gun industry along, but it will never criticize the gun lobby because, I mean, why are you going to criticize the things that are driving sales? You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. if if fear and conspiracy drive sales, you're like, well, give me a little more fear and conspiracy. <laughs> exactly right. Well, uh, in particular, in terms of the proliferation of firearms, uh, after Sandy Hook, there was a massive surge in gun sales. I mean, the charts are striking to look at between yep. gun sales in 2012 versus gun sales in 2013 and then onward until present day. Just a gigantic, uh, sustained uh, stockpiling of firearms. 20 kindergartners murdered in school along with six teachers using an AR-15. And in reaction, Americans ran out and went crazy buying up AR-15s. Again, the weapon used at Sandy Hook became the most popular rifle to uh, purchase as a consumer. It'd be like Americans running out and buying box cutters and one-way airline flights after 9-11. You know what I mean? What was your reaction to that? It seems like the exact opposite thing happened in response to Sandy Hook than what should have happened, which should have been more caution about firearms. Instead, it was this gigantic uh, uh, boom time for the uh, firearm industry. Well, that should have been, I mean, obviously that was a horrific time. I was in the industry then. Um, It's just terrible for the country. Um, I, I can't even go on about how disastrous it was. It should have also served, though, as a warning bell for how broken our politics were, yeah. because um, rather than come together and try to form up some moderate modicum of you know policy that made things a little bit better, even if it didn't fix anything or everything, what the NRA did was double down. They told um, gun consumers and and um, you know sort of the political right that watch out. Um, these people are going to use this to come get your guns and why you can, instead of, again, trying to fix things instead, why you can, you better rush out and go buy everything that you can right away. In other words, the NRA had already perfected the fear machine long before Donald Trump really tapped into it and put it on steroids. The NRA was using it. And looking back now, we should have as a nation viewed that as, as a sort of foreboding predictor of how bad things might get, because even after 20 little kids were killed, um, instead of doing the right thing, what do we do? Oh, we decide to be fearful and run out and, and act irrationally. And, and and we did. Yeah, there were Republican lawmakers who were giving away AR-15s as uh, prizes in contests where they're gathering email addresses and giving away yeah. AR-15s and random Well, uh, and it's drawings. progressing to, to Christmas cards, right? I mean, yeah, that's the... Yeah. Lauren Boebert and Thomas Massey and, you know, um, MTG, um, she's, she can't go 10 minutes without talking about an AR-15 or posting a picture of, of her one. And that's the, the symbolism has taken over. Did you ever experience as part of the uh, gun industry when you were still there prior to the epiphany of the last uh, however many uh, half a dozen years or so? Did you ever experience a sense of guilt over those mass shootings and the radicalism that's built up around firearms uh, because of that? For example, I always wonder if my punditry has worsened the discourse, for example, like my participation and my uh, vocal nature, so to speak, whether that has uh, worsened our divisive politics. I'm I'm constantly grappling with that. Do, Do you feel a sense of responsibility to an extent for what's happened around guns in the last 20 years or so during your time in the industry? I mean, there's a on one hand, no, because and I'll tell you why. 
And then I'm going to also tell you yes. But the, the reason no is because I fought, I never built, I never marketed, I resisted having anything to do with AR-15s. I wouldn't mm -hmm. do it, even though people in my company wanted to, even though we got lots of pressure to do it, I wouldn't do it. We didn't build um, high capacity polymer frame handguns like you often see used. I wouldn't do it. I didn't want to touch them. Mm -hmm. We didn't market in egregiously irresponsible ways, even though lots of people wanted us to, we wouldn't do it. And so I held my head high saying, look, I, I believe in gun ownership, the kind of responsible gun ownership that I grew up with. So that's my no part of it. The yes part of it is eventually it was true that I was that the, that the industry was so monolithic that even though I was fighting back and trying to throw, you know, all sort of wrenches in the gears and everything else to slow the radical, the political radicalization down, mm -hmm. um, I was because I was a part of it and because the company I worked for was highly, you know, respected, I saw myself as kind of feeding it, even though, even though I was fighting not to feed it. Yeah. That's why I eventually got out, not because I was doing something that I personally felt um, you know, and, and our guns, like I never had to wake up and, and see the name of my gun used at a place like Sandy Hook, right? That, that yeah, we yeah, didn't yeah, sell those yeah. kind of guns. So, but, but still I became part of the industry and we were told we were all one. We were told we had to march together. And eventually I'm like, bullshit, I ain't marching with you guys. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The company you worked for was more about handguns, right? Well, really, um, hunting rifles and old classic, um, low capacity, right? Handguns, seven, eight capacity, seven, eight round capacity handguns, the sort of stuff that is justifiable from a um, self-defense standpoint. And and it's not that you couldn't use them offensively, but, that, but that's not what they're designed for. The reason you see the guns being used in the crimes the way you see them today is because they are designed for offensive military operation. That's what the, that's what they're for. They satisfy some sort of internal insecurity, as far as I'm concerned. It seems like the guys who have have to have these uh, high capacity magazines and uh, the, these uh, military style uh, uh, rifles, it, it reflects some sort of inner fear that's maybe instilled upon them from the outside by the gun lobby and the usual suspects. But maybe there's something else going on in there uh, that these kinds of firearms, these uh, military style firearms actually comforts them in some way. It's uh, it's pacifies them in a sense. Is that accurate to say? Because it seems like the kind of firearms that your company was producing are just as practical for defending yourself as something that is that, that you would see in a Rambo movie, which is they're kind more, of the more practical. Yeah. Yeah. More oh, yeah. practical, yeah. right? Um, because they're not offensive. The, the, so the, the sort of um, analogy I use in one way is think about cars. Most all cars have four wheels. They have a steering wheel. They have an engine of some sort, whether it's electrical or gas or whatever. So uh, yeah. some of them are big, some of them are small. Um, what an AR-15 basically is, is think of it like a Formula One car. It's not as big and powerful as a truck, but if you have to take something really fast somewhere and corner and accelerate super quick and get from A to B, you know, in very fast times, well, then a Formula One car, that's your that's your thing. And that's basically what an AR-15 is. It's specifically designed for something um, very, and, and then take that further. Do you think it would be a good idea to put a bunch of unlicensed 16-year-olds in Formula One cars driving all over town? I don't. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and so do I – I don't mean to castigate all owners of AR-15s in, in, the, in the way that you describe them because obviously there's millions of them out there. They're not all doing that. However, when you introduce something that potentially momentously dangerous – 
it requires that much more responsibility, permitting, all the sorts of things that you would think would go along with that. And instead, in most places, we're going the other way. Why are we surprised that this is happening in places like Allen, Texas and yeah. Buffalo, New York? I mean, why are we shocked about that? Yeah. We're, we're essentially dumping Formula One race cars into a place where there's troubled young men who are told that this thing can fix them, fix themselves and make them into a big man like th this is what they're going to do. Oh, my God. The Patreon app for your smartphone is the best way to stay up to date with new episodes of The Bob Seska Show. Every time there's a new episode, you're going to get an automatic alert on your phone, notifications for the free shows on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and notifications for the Friday after party, plus the Shadow Docket shows, too. You can listen at home or in the car with a couple of swipes, and you can join our community of listeners in the comments under each episode. Subscribe for as little as $1 a month at bobseskashow.com or patreon.com slash bobseskashow. Then download the Patreon app from the App Store on your phone, and you've done it. Again, that's bobseskashow.com, and we thank you. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I want to turn now, Ryan, to a discussion about the gun culture itself. This is something I've written and talked about extensively, not only in terms of where we are right now, but what we can kind of do that's at our disposal that maybe will circumvent uh, the legislative process, the courts, and so on. So uh, in the interest of full disclosure here, I'm as pro-gun control as you can get, obviously, but even I own an 1862 Springfield rifled musket, which I've actually fired several times with actual lead mini balls. And my office is filled with Star Wars and Star Trek things involving laser guns. It's, it's really so entwined into our culture. Some of us who are pro-gun control are actually kind of wrapped up in it, in a sense. Is there something about the hobby of collecting firearms or the wish fulfillment behind owning something like an AR-15, which looks cinematic and kind of badass. Is there something about our culture that feeds this kind of sacrosanct idolatry surrounding firearms? Yeah, Bob, I think it's, I think it's all that actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a hundred percent that, and that's, this is why I, I understand the urge um, perhaps of folks like you who, um, who, who seek, policy solutions and perhaps sort of far ranging policy solutions and hope that they will be adopted and hope they will make a change. I'm, I'm dubious of many of those. I'm very dubious of the political will of the country to do them. Yeah. Um, however, you know, I just, 
I just can't see many of them passing. Um, what we can do, though, we have to we have to do things that change the culture. And so, if we if we here here's a good example. You may not think open carry is a huge thing. I do because I live in a place where open carry was very prevalent, especially during COVID, where you had a bunch of these armed right wing jack wagons. I mean, I lived in the place where the Oath Keepers home base was, northwestern Montana. Wow. And so, um, open carry to me is something that goes at the culture. In other words, it's we need to tell people it's not okay to use your guns flashing them out in the open to intimidate people. Mm-hmm might seem like a small thing, but to me, that's a very culturally important law because it starts to tell all of us, wait a second, you don't have to normalize this. You don't have to have, you don't have to listen to these loud people with the loud microphones and the big guns telling you that they can march around town with loaded guns. No, you don't. I mean, think about the Michigan Capitol, the Kentucky Capitol, all places where AR-15s were loaded, high capacity magazines, right-wing radicals marched into capitals. Or, or you think they're doing that to bring people flowers? Hell no, they're not. <laughs> they're trying to subvert democracy. Yeah. And so I think of, of ways like that. Um, and, and we're in the middle of a, a bit of a constitutional crisis on this because of um, the, the Bruin Supreme Court case. I think a lot of these things are in question. But I think of like raising the minimum age for purchase of semi-automatic gun, uh, rifles from it's 18 right now. It should be 21. Um, that's an it will it fix everything? No. But we did not get here because of one big thing. We got here through 30 years of incremental court culture war and some legislative breakdown, and most importantly, a breakdown in our social norms. We've yeah. got to figure out a way to put that back together. Yeah, you know, Ryan, I'm right with you when it comes to legislative solutions. And I, I hate to be that guy. I hate to be that cynical guy who said, you know what, why bother at this point? I feel as though we should keep bothering, but I don't have a lot of hope for getting something through, whether it's uh, state legislatures or the congressional level, and then from there uh, making it through the courts. It seems like uh, a Hail Mary pass, in a sense, to go that route. So I've been gaming out this idea for entirely circumventing, as I said, the uh, legislative process to kind of defang the gun culture using kind of a grassroots, multi-pronged campaign uh, modeled primarily after the campaign against big tobacco and cigarettes, which yeah. had been hugely successful. I mean, obviously, there are still smokers and you can still go out to the store and buy a pack of cigarettes. But uh, the number of smokers has been reduced significantly to the point where people who are still smoking cigarettes are kind of doing that thing. You always see them under the and I, I'm an ex smoker. I smoked for 17 years. But toward the end there, I remember paying five, six, seven dollars a pack and huddling under awnings in the rain, you know, just sucking down something quickly before I get hypothermia. And, and so that's kind of what's happened. Well, think about it, man. Yeah. 1987 was the first federal regulation to regulate smoking. And it happened on flights of two hours or less. If the flight yeah. was still two hours or more, you could still smoke on. That's 1987. Yeah. I think your point here is an excellent one. We didn't take people's freedoms away. Still today, if you want to, I hope you don't, but if you want to, you can go purchase as many cartons of cigarettes as you want, and you can just sit under that awning and smoke your little heart out, mm-hmm. out you know? Yeah. So we didn't take your freedom away, but we damn sure made it uncool. <laughs> we damn right. sure did Yeah, and the same goal would apply to uh, firearms, and that would be, and this kind of, this really applies to your personal bio, Ryan, and that is to rewind the view of firearms in the United States, the cultural view of firearms, 
back to a place where it was manageable and reasonable. I think, and I underscore the word reasonable, everything you described as far as your personal experiences, whether it's with your kids now or the way you were brought up and a way a lot of gun owners were brought up about, you know, uh, making sure that uh, safety was a priority and this is a means to an end and not an end in and of itself, uh, firearm ownership. Uh, these are all goals. These are all places that I think a cultural pushback against the radicalism and extremism we see now uh, would achieve. Amen. Do you think that? Yeah. So I think that you're hitting on something there as much as as little as I want to give credit to MAGA. Um, and I want to give it very little credit. <laughs> but as uh, uh, think of the, the comfort zone in the marketing of the idea is quite powerful. You're going back to something that you once um, liked and was and were familiar with. That's sort of the. That's why it's so easy. That's why it's so catchy. Yeah. And I think to your point here, we're not. At, this is not what you propose and what I think we need to do is not some newfangled, you know, <laughs> crazy communist scheme. Yeah. This is like, hey, let's just go back to about 17, 18, 19 years ago when things weren't perfect, but they were a lot better. We didn't count mass shootings, you know, to the tune of 1.6 a day. Yeah. We didn't have so many school shootings. We can't even remember what they are. We, we didn't intimidate people on street corners with loaded AR-15s. It, it, look, we're not going to be a country that doesn't have guns in it. And I'm I'm thankful for that. However, to your point, a single thing in the that we, a, some single freedom cannot be the do-all and end-all of our country. We are in this because we want life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. And if we're willing to sacrifice all of those for one single freedom, we're, if we're willing to literally make people sacrifice their life, their liberty, and their pursuit of happiness, because we won't accept some modicum of responsibility, then, then the country is going to crumble. Yeah. I, the thing I always think about when it comes to uh, working on legislation and some sort of, uh, you know, nibbling around the edges of things. I know one of the things you talk about a lot is closing the gun show loophole uh, legislation along those lines. But we always end up running into that brick wall of the Second Amendment. That just always seems to be the biggest impediment. And I think a cultural solution entirely you know, kind of sidesteps that whole thing, outflanks that brick wall and is able to move forward because you're not requiring any form of legislation. Now, the one thing that I do get concerned about, Ryan, and I think this is a legitimate concern, is the pushback against that. And what we've seen in the past is whenever there's a significant effort to pass any sort of gun control legislation, gun safety legislation, there's so much pushback against that that it actually further metastasizes the pro-gun radicalism. Is that something that you think might be a problem in that sort of cultural solution? Well, I think I think what you bring up is really the heart of um, where we are as a nation right now. Mm -hmm. Are we still a nation that can do things like you describe in the kind of messy gray space of a democracy. Yeah. And and this is the way a democracy must work. It's not perfect. Nobody's going to get a perf perfect solution. We have to work in the middle to make things marginally better instead of marginally worse. So are we at a place where we can still do that? Or is the mere conversation going to tip us over into this really armed, bloody, civil, you know, slow, cold civil war? Um, and and I, I'm sad. I think the jury's out on whether we're in a healthy enough spot to be able to do this or not. The cigarette thing did not come without some 
pretty nasty pushback. Yeah. But um, people said, okay, hold, come on, the rights of everybody matter here, not just your right to smoke, but what about the rights of people that have to suck in that secondhand smoke, right? You know, eventually, cooler heads prevailed. Um, I don't know if we're still there as a country. We're in a far worse place than we were when we did the cigarette thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's an open question on, on how healthy we are right now. Can, can we do that or not? Is there anything that could potentially change the perception of the gun lobby and gun manufacturers to the point where there could be some Republican votes shaken loose in support of things like an assault weapons ban or banning the gun show loophole, things like that, things that have been historically filibustered by Republicans? Well, we had Sandy Hook. We had Uvalde. It's, yeah. tough to, it's, it's, yeah. it's, quite, it's quite difficult to imagine anything more horrific than little kids laying dead in a school. I, I, I just don't, I, I can't hardly think about that. I will, I will say this. I think we were very damn close to having just a, such an event on January 6th. Mm -hmm. We're, you know, 50 or hundred guys, well-armed with high capacity magazines. If they would have actually brought their guns to the Capitol more, uh, many of them did a lot more than people think, but um, those were, those were handguns and they were concealed. If they would have actually showed up, if they'd have brought the guns from the hotel and started firing. Um, man, I, I, I think we were incredibly close to something like that happening. Something like that happens again. I hope the country rises up and says, okay, enough is enough. But, yeah. you know, outside of that, it's tough to imagine. In fact, the country has already risen up, if you believe the polls. The numbers show that the country is already there. The country basically, by and large, in supermajority numbers, as we talked about before, supports things like assault weapons bans and uh, strengthening the background check system and so on. Uh, it's a matter of breaking that tether between the gun lobby gun manufacturers and Republicans in Congress. Obviously, there are some Democrats who are intimidated by the gun lobby as well, and, and I think we're familiar with some of those names. Joe Manchin, I think, is one. But uh, by and large, we're talking about Republicans. I'm trying to figure out uh, if there is some kind of event, not that I'm wishing for some sort of event like this, but uh, the way Reagan was shaken loose uh, when it came Reagan to lobbied, the, by Reagan, the way, yeah, uh, James Brady lobbied for yeah. the assault weapons ban. Yep. People who people don't know that uh, Republicans hate to admit that or hate to remember it. But the assault weapons ban passed in 1994, largely because Ronald Reagan sent letters to every single senator begging them to sign it. Yeah. Um, and it did. And it barely passed. You know, imagine how much how different the country is today than then. I, I will say this, Bob, I think the one thing I remind people of, and this is very true, Republican moms don't like to drop their kids off at school and worry about their kids' safety either. Yeah. Um, it's not a Democratic mom issue. It's not a, you know, it's all parents detest um, worrying about their kids in this way. And I do sense a certain bubbling up around the country that more more people, more politicians are running on the gun issue. It used to be kind of this third rail thing nobody touched. Now people are running on it. I think they sense that it's kind of at a tipping point. Um, like a lot of things that the Republicans have done, it's sort of dog catching the car kind of thing, much like, like Dobbs is. I think the gun thing is quite similar to that. Um, I just hope that we can kind of come to our senses, um, not overreact, but, re but start to react and make things marginally better before the gas and the matches get so close together that we that we can't pull them apart anymore. Yeah, I think part of the problem, Ryan, is uh, we're in this post-contradiction, post-hypocrisy era where 
making a valid argument, making a strong argument for, uh, in this case, uh, new gun control legislation, tends to fall on deaf ears no matter how well that argument is constructed. For example, guns aren't allowed at many Republican events, including the CPAC conventions, which indicates Republicans are willing to embrace exceptions to their anti-gun regulation posture, right? Why these exceptions, but not exceptions for, say, for example, open carrying in Walmart? I I don't understand. Uh, well, I, I write about this in the I write about this in my book. It's a chapter called um, "Bulletproof Glass." Yeah. But if you go to any firearms manufacturing facility, the biggest gun companies in the United States, the sort of safety procedures that you have to adhere to, mm-hmm. the sort of records keeping procedures that you have to adhere to, the bulletproof glass is a reference to. There was there was literally the senior leadership and the gun company I worked for put bulletproof glass up in the office so that if anybody went postal in a gun company, that the executives would be saved. Right. If you went if you went and shot in the company range, you had to fill out a background check. Then you had to wear safety gear. Then you had to have a range officer there. And if you screwed up one little bit like it was all over, like if, if you even waved the muzzle around wrong. So my point is that the people who are most closely associated with guns understand full well the sort of responsibility that's necessary to prevent bad outcomes. And yet <laughs> that same industry fights about fights any sort of responsible regulation out in the general public. There's a big disconnect there. Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing when I think about uh, guys like you, Ryan, and I also think about this in terms of never Trump uh, conservatives, uh, it's got to be a difficult place to be in. Has the gun industry, gun lobbyists, has there ever been any pushback against your work now? Uh, do they view you as kind of a traitor to the effort? Uh, have you been intimidated in any way by them? I know you might be shocked, Bob, but I'm not getting a lot of gun company Christmas cards these days. <laughs> um, um, yeah, look, I knew this was coming. I'm the only one that's stepped out like this. I'm the only one that's written a book. The totalitarian culture that I write about is very, very real, and it is very similar to the the you know the Trump situation where behind the scenes you might get a lot of people that kind of grumble, but do any of them really say it publicly? I mean, you know, we've had a tiny handful, but no, not really, um, because there is like being a Liz Cheney is not, is not a great thing for these people, right? There isn't a career path for the Liz Cheneys of the world. Um, I was critical of the gun industry a long, long time, 15 years before I did this. I was fighting it from the inside. So in some ways for me, it's not that big a shift. But um, yeah, I'm I'm definitely not not viewed um, really favorably by, by most people in the gun industry. Do you get a sense that uh, there are some others who might be joining you? Is that something that is possible even? Or do you feel like you're basically most out of on a limb people, by yourself? Yeah. Most of those people have been weeded out or have been converted. You know, they force themselves to convert because their social circle, everything, the gun industry is such a tight knit thing that your entire social circle tends to revolve around your work, mm-hmm. your vacations, your, you, you know, you go to trade shows, you see these people at bars, you end up going to their weddings, you mourn with them when their parents pass. Um, and giving all that up, which I had to do, it is is very difficult for most people. I think if they couldn't do it, I have had several that have left the industry that have told me like, yeah, man, thanks for writing that. It was horrible. I had Mm -hmm. to get out, but they're no longer in there. And so the ones that are still in there, they, again, they just don't, there's no incentive for them to be a Liz Cheney. 
If there was one secret about the gun manufacturing industry that you'd like people to know, what is that? What is that one thing that a lot of people don't maybe don't have a grasp of, but they probably should? I think it's funny. I've not been asked that, but something I've been thinking about just a little bit that hits on this for quite some time when um, the AR-15 started to take hold and, and people should understand that gun nuts now like to say things like, you know, it's a generational thing. We've always had AR-15s. You know, <laughs> my granddaddy had a, that's just a bunch of bunk. Yeah. Um, until about 2005 or six, the industry made hardly any of them. It would not sell them. It did not market them. It castigated them. And so really it was about 2008 or nine before these things really took hold. And, and so there's, there's that little piece. And the second piece is, I think for quite some time, even these big companies that got into the AR-15 business sort of looked around, this is not a perfect analogy and, and don't take it the wrong way, but they kind of looked around like, are you, are you kidding me? Like we get to sell cocaine here and nobody's going to say anything. <laughs> it, almost like, yeah. well, sooner, sooner or later, the cops are going to show up. This is going to be over. So let's just keep going. <laughs> and then, you know, 10 years later, shit, man, we're still selling, selling coke. It's awesome. The business is great. Yeah. It's, it had the feeling like people were sort of looking over their shoulder, not hardly believing what they were doing was going to be sustainable or legal. And, and it, so it was that far more than this sort of strategic planned out thing. It was kind of an accidental thing. So uh, before we wrap up here, Ryan, tell me about uh, your book gunfight. Uh, this is a, is this a memoir? Is this a, the, the basic yeah. gist of the book? So it's, it's a combination memoir and history of how we got here. And I wanted I wanted to write a book that like if you would say if you want to read one book about how our gun culture and how our um american populace was transformed from what it was in the 90s or before to what it is now like this is your book so it's a narrow lens on me and the characters that i worked with and everybody in the industry and a wider lens on 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 the larger societal changes and and the legal changes and and what's going on in the country so you walk through as, as a member of the industry, but also as a member of the country at the same time. Boy, Ryan, I give you a lot of credit for sticking your neck out. It's a, it's a super brave thing to do. Uh, that may be an understatement, uh, given the uh, strength, the might, the predisposition to intimidation by some of the people who would be uh, quite angry about what you've I do, written I do and what get you've some, done. I do get some very, very... Um, Colorful, entertaining, um, uh, four-letter word-laced uh, sure. emails from time to time, you can yeah. imagine. Wow. Okay, well, I got a link in the description to buy uh, Gunfight. And where can people find you on social media, Ryan? Um, Ryan D. Bussy at Twitter. And um, you can just, Ryan Bussy author is my author web uh, website. And uh, would love to hear from anybody. Sounds great. I'll put links in the description for all that, too. Uh, thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate your time, and I appreciate everything you're doing. It's quite necessary, and I hope you pick up some uh, disciples along the way as far as some other former gun industry people, as I was saying before. If we can find some way in, I think uh, that's a path that can be exploited to uh, do some real good in this country, and it's uh, way long past time. Yeah, thanks for the work you do, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much, Ryan. Take care. Uh -huh. The streets aligned with mourners Waiting for a parade that never comes All of us are backed into the corner Looking for a little 
touch of sun Raise your arms, raise your eyes Raise your voices to the skies Eventually the deepest wounds will heal Raise your heart, raise your head We can even raise the dead Cause in my dreams you're still alive and real of the rainbow capitulate to only black and white we are gonna step out from the shadow looking for the everlasting light raise your arms raise your eyes raise your voices to Skies. Eventually, the deepest wounds will heal. Raise your heart, raise your head. We can even raise the dead. Cause in my dreams, you're still alive and real. Your heart, raise your head. 